Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he has perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again, asked, or again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. But Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having uh, scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Thankful that you're with us. For me, it started uh, when I was watching this, uh, this wooden console television. Maybe you remember those. And I saw, I don't remember if I saw this live or later in the news, but a white Bronco being chased by police cars. Indeed, I wasn't the only one who watched that. If you remember this story, 95 million viewers saw this. And this was, for, for me, the, the start of the O.J. Simpson trial. That was a trial that was a, a drama that unfolded before all of America as there was a 130 some odd days of trial that were recorded and placed on television. It was put before millions and it ended up with this kind of controversial verdict. And what we see in the Gospel of Mark is that he starts to do something similar. He takes a really dramatic trial of Jesus and he kind of places it as that trial was before us all. For everyone who would read his gospel that we might too see and be kind of caught up with with what is going on. But rather than a a bronco chase, the officials show up in a garden. It's a little bit different scene. And then Jesus is taken to his public trial. And instead of this dream team of defense attorneys where they say, you know, the, the famous saying they had was, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Jesus is alone. No defense attorney. He stands by himself, and he stands silent before his accusers. But not only is his trial before the Jews that we've seen described in the Gospel of Mark, but also it goes to the higher court after them. It moves into the the Roman overlords of the Jewish people, and that's what we see this morning. And Mark uh, shows us this dramatic trial of Jesus. And while we have uh, O.J.'s trial and his innocence or guilt are, are still up for debate, Mark shows us something different with Jesus. Mark uses Jesus' trial to 
with Pilate to further show both the guilt and the, the evil, the wickedness of, of those who are standing against Jesus to condemn him, and also the innocence of Jesus. Innocence that is absolutely essential in order for Jesus to be a ransom for many. And so Mark moves his story along from the trial before the Jews to the trial before the Roman governor, Pilate. So after Jesus has experienced a long night full of wickedness and false accusations, the Sanhedrin is still working, they're still scheming to destroy Jesus. So verse 1 says, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests, they, they held the consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and they led him away to be delivered over to Pilate. So we know that the Jews were given some jurisdiction. They had some right to reign and rule over their matters in some capacities. But there's no proof that the Jews could at least legitimately carry out the death sentence, the, the sentence that they wanted for Jesus. And so that's perhaps why they employ the Romans in order to get the end that they desire. Their end, again, has is, is been clear from chapter 3 in the Gospel of Mark, that they want to destroy Jesus. They want to bring him down. They want his death. And so they employ the Romans who have the power of the sword over all the Jewish people and over all that they would decide. They have the power of the sword, and so they employ them to accomplish their goal. Now, Roman legal proceedings, at least according to the philosopher Seneca, they took place at daybreak, and so that's when they delivered Jesus over to Pilate. He is the Roman governor, and if you know much, and we don't have a lot in Mark's gospel of Pilate, but what we know about Pilate was that he was really no friend of the Jews. We see this in uh, Luke chapter 13. It gives us just a, a short little snippet of Pilate. It says, just there were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, you don't have to know a ton about Jewish culture to know that this is wrong. This is insensitive at best of Pilate to murder some people and then start mixing blood in sacrifices. And so we know that Pilate is no friend of the Jews. And the charge that they're bringing to Pilate, who is not their friend, is the charge of blasphemy, right? That's what they had decided, that Jesus says that I am what these things that you tell me that I am. I, I am the, the Son of God. I am the Messiah. He confessed those things, and they tear their robes saying, this is blasphemy, and they all charge him with that. But that's not a charge that Pilate probably cares about. And he doesn't care if the, the Jews think that there's blasphemy. He doesn't believe in any of their gods anyway. And so as they come with Jesus and with this charge of blasphemy, surely they know that this isn't a charge that he's going to care about. It's not going to lead to their desired end. And their desired end is his execution, his destruction. Now, it might lead to Jesus' flogging. Maybe it would lead to some sort of punishment just because he doesn't like them and he wants to make a show of things. But his release would be likely, especially since Pilate shows his desire at times, and even in this trial you'll see it, not to follow their desires. So even if they want his destruction, he might not bring about his destruction just in a desire to not do what they want. So they need to bring a serious charge against him. And so here's what they do. They get together and they start to cook up a scheme against Jesus that will result in his execution. Now we don't get this in Mark, so we'll fill it in a little bit with Luke's gospel that I think just gives us enough detail and then puts us right back where we are in Mark's gospel. So if you look in Luke 23, verses 1 and 2, it says, The whole company, arose, whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. 
And here's what they do. Here's what they've cooked up. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man. Now remember, the charge was blasphemy, but they've skewed it a little bit. They found this man, we have found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, which he did say, he affirmed that, right? But now they're pushing it a little bit further, that he's Christ, he's a king. And they know what kind of overtones and what kind of atmosphere that will bring. And they know what kind of charges that will bring before Pilate if he makes himself a king. Now all of a sudden we have something that Pilate has to listen to. And so they deliver Jesus with a charge. And it's not the charge of blasphemy. It's more political than that. It's, it's more political than theological. Before they, they, bring the, they say, we need to sentence this man. He's committed blasphemy. That was a theological charge. And this one that they're trying to bring is a political charge. And so they paint Jesus as misleading the Jews, and as one who would rival other kings, rivaling even Caesar himself in his own claim to kingship and to be the Messiah. That charge is a charge of treason, high treason against Caesar, that if anyone found guilty of that, surely that would lead to their execution. And at some level, we know that their charge of blasphemy that they were bringing against Jesus was certainly wrong. Uh, They were thinking differently than Jesus, and we know that Jesus himself is God incarnate, so that their charge of blasphemy was wrong because he was God. But at least in their minds, theologically, it was justifiable to them that here's someone who's saying that he's God, and we don't think he is, and so clearly that charge of blasphemy seemed justifiable in their eyes. But this charge that they lay before Pilate shouldn't be justifiable for them. I mean, part of their charge in Luke was that he was forbidding them to pay tribute to Caesar. It was patently false. They're lying. We know what they, he said. We saw this in Mark's gospel, right? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? He surrendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So it was patently false. It's just interesting the means that they're using to secure Jesus' destruction. Now they've gone a little bit further into their sin. They're starting to be a little bit even more hard-hearted. Use whatever means they can do to bring about their desired end. And their means that they are using are clearly wicked. And yet, this council, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, the the people that should be righteous, that know the law, in their hard-heartedness, they continue the charge forward to get what they want. And you've got to wonder, now that you're employing the Romans and trying to bring out the death sentence and you actually have lied in the charge you've brought against him and even in the other charges aren't the charges you found him accused of, you're kind of skewing them for him, where does this come from? What is happening here? And the answer is that it comes from a common place, a place that resides in us all. See, Jesus talked about this place in Mark chapter 7 when he was speaking to a group of Pharisees. In Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 20, here's what Jesus said. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man. Now, not just the heart of these men, not just the heart of Pharisees or this council, out of the heart of man, in general, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. The list is long because it should be long. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. That's what's going on, is that what's inside them, their hearts, is coming out. And it seems to be going a little bit further down the line of wickedness, but it's all coming from 
within. There's a reason for the warning that we get in Hebrews chapter 3. It says, watch out, and it talks about the deceitfulness of sin. There's a reason for that warning about the deceitfulness of sin, because sin's nature is deceitful. It it is bewitching by nature. One author says this, speaking about the deceitfulness of sin. He says, this phrase, the deceitfulness of sin, ought to be understood in a much wider sense. So that the term includes even one's own righteousness and wisdom. For more than anything else, one's own righteousness and wisdom deceive one and work against faith in Christ. Since we love the flesh and the sensations of the flesh and also the riches and possessions. But we love nothing more ardently than our own feelings, judgment, purpose, and will. Especially when they seem to be good. So he says... Because of the deceitfulness of sin, the nature of sin, its deceitful, bewitching nature that we need to be aware even of our own righteousness, our own wisdom, especially in areas where we think the things seem to be good. Because we are inclined to love our own feelings, our own judgment, our own purpose. And we will especially love them when we think that they are good. And this accurately describes the Sanhedrin at this point, does it not? They think that they are carrying out a righteous mission. They think they are doing something good. They have found Jesus guilty, and so they must bring about his execution. And so they're trusting in their own judgments, their own feelings, and they're ardent about it because they seem good to them. And that definition describes the Sanhedrin, the council. May it never describe us. You see, sin isn't always obvious. It's not obvious to them here. Obviously, they're blinded to it. And what happens often with sin is that it might start out in seemingly small, and then it goes easy from there, and it gets a lot, grows, compounds quickly and easily in our lives. It's, it says, C.S. Lewis says, it's a soft pad underfoot as we gently go downwards, and before we know it, we're way further than we thought. And it started out pretty bad, but they're going even worse. At times, we only see the hook, or we only see the bait in sin, and we don't see the hook that's hidden behind it. It's not always obvious. We need to be warned of the deceitfulness of sin. We need to know its bewitching nature. We need to know that as weak, sinful people with hearts like Jesus described in Mark chapter 7. And the one way that that the book of Hebrews talks about this is the deceitfulness of sin. It tells us here's what, at least part of the answer, what we need to guard against the deceitfulness of sin is that we need honest, loving community around to help guard us against this, to warn us, to exhort us, to encourage us every single day. From within their hearts comes this wickedness, these charges against Jesus. But they are charges that appeal to Pilate. They were strategic in their nature and how they carried out this plan. And so in verse 2, Pilate asks him. This is something that he, he has to look into. He can't just leave alone. This is the charge that Jesus is another king rivaling Caesar. He can't just, as the governor of the Jews, let that one lie. And so he makes an inquisition of Jesus. And he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Straightforward. And Jesus answers him, you have said so. Now, when Pilate comes to him, it seems like we have this kind of private 
interchange between them. And he asks them this question. So are you the king of the Jews? This is what they're saying. Is this who you are? They're, they're one-on-one. They're, they're, they're separated from the, the mob, from the crowd. And with this, this powerful governor in front of him, the one who can release him and in a sense like clear his name in front of the people, here's what I would do is I would explode at this point. Am I the king of the Jews? You have no idea. I made your mouth that's talking to me right now, by the way. I'm king of the Jews before Abraham. You know, that's the one they call the father of the Jews. Before Abraham was, I am. I'm the, I'm the, the one who's going to be the son of man, the one who's going to have eternal dominion. Are you kidding me? King of the Jews? No, it's not just the Jewish people. It's going to be all people for all time. I'm the Messiah, but not in the way that you think. Much, much bigger than that. That's probably how I'd respond. Jesus answers differently. You've said so. It, it's not quite a denial. And yes, yeah, like, it's not also quite an affirmation, is it? I mean, it is an affirmation, but, but almost, just barely, right? And, and John, I think, helps us in his gospel just fill in a little bit of this so that we get a little better picture of what Jesus is getting at with this kind of part denial, part affirmation. So if you turn to John chapter 18... John starts in, verse, in chapter 18, verse 36. I'll start reading. It kind of picks up the trial. Jesus answers, My kingdom is not of this world. <laughs> he sets him up right there. All right. The king and the kingdom that you're thinking about, Pilate, are not the same king and kingdom I'm thinking about. They're different. My kingdom is a little bit bigger than what you have even imagined. It's not even of this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus said, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Yes, Jesus is definitely, in a sense, affirming that he is the king, but not the king that they're thinking about. Now, I'm the king, but not like that. Not kind of the one that you're thinking of. He doesn't back down from being the king, but he's not the king in the way he's being accused of being the king. His kingship, his kingdom... Don't rival Caesar's in the way that they're, it's portrayed. It definitely rivals Caesar. In fact, actually, it's not a rival. It trumps Caesar's kingdom and Caesar as king without a doubt. But they're accusing him as being a rival kingdom who's going to raise up and come after Caesar. But his kingship, he says, and his kingdom are not of this world. And one author says this, that the absurdity of the scene was plain to them both. And Jesus had no followers And his own people were the ones who wanted him dead. And so the way that they're going about this, as Pilate looks around and he hears the charges, he has to look into it, but he's looking around like, you don't even have anybody here. Like, no sense would Pilate think that this guy is actually a king that could rival Caesar. He can see the centurions all around. He can see where he's at in the fortress that surrounds him. Like, he knows all these things. And so the absurdity of the scene should have been plain. And Jesus, too. Surely I'm not guilty of these things. You know he has lived his life out in front of people. King of the Jews? This is where you'd say, like, you're the king, you and what army, right? And he has none. The absurdity would have been obvious. And yet the charges against Jesus continue to fly. Listen to what Mark says in verse 3 and 4. It's not just that. They're letting many fly. The chief priests accused him of many things. And so Pilate, again, he has to investigate. So he again asks him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges 
they bring against you. Again, Jesus has his chance to defend himself. This is his chance to be cleared of all these bogus charges that are being brought against him. He gets a chance to answer. Here's his due process. And what happens? Verse 5. Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Jesus continues to fulfill and walk in Isaiah 53, 7, where a sheep before his shears is silent. And he opens not his mouth as he's led to the slaughter. Why and how? Remember, Peter tells us the why and the how in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says in chapter 2, verse 22, that he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued to what? Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's how. He trusts himself to his Father. And Jesus entrusts himself even before powerful Pilate, the one who has the power of the sword. Jesus trusts one higher than him. And so he walks in obedience to him. And his obedience and silence before Pilate amazes Pilate. And it leads Pilate, we think, to assume Jesus' innocence. He starts to suspect that the charges are false, that the charges are bogus, and that Jesus is innocent. And so, in a way, he starts to seek, through some strange ways, his release. He says, at the feast, they used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in the prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up, and they began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And so who does he put forward? What's his plan? I think he suspects Jesus is innocent, and so here's what he says. He answered them, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Like, attempt number one to let him go. You want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Pilate knew that Jesus wasn't a revolutionary in the ways that others were, even in the way that Barabbas was. He knew that the Jewish leaders had their own reasons for wanting Jesus executed. And he even names it. It was out of envy. Envy. Now, everyone who is a student of Toy Story, the movie, knows the dangers of envy. All right? Toy Story 1, you see this party where Andy Davis, the other Andy Davis, he has this birthday party. And he gets all these presents, and it seems like it's going good for the toys until they open this really great one. It's big, and it's awesome. And who's in this present? Buzz Lightyear, this amazing space ranger. Well, Woody, he's just a, a cowboy doll, so he, he gets, starts to have a little envy because he only has a pull string, and he doesn't really do all that much. Buzz has, like, wings and lights and better sound. All these things, he can even fly. And what it starts to do for Woody, is it starts to eat him alive. Like he is just fed up with, with envy everywhere he goes, and he just can't get over it. And so he takes the race car, you know, and tries to knock Buzz behind the desk. But instead of knocking behind the desk, he knocks out the window, and then the rest of Toy Story ensues. But long before the people at Pixar wrote Toy Story, Proverbs chapter 14, the voice of wisdom said to us that envy makes the bones rot. Again, long before Toy Story was written, we have wisdom from James chapter 4 that tells us why quarrels and fights and things happen. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? 
Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. They don't have what they want. There's some envy, and so they go after it in sinful ways. I mean, what James has explained, the rotting of the bones that Proverbs explained, is what is playing out in front of Pilate with the Jews and with Jesus. And Pilate sees it. And he kind of seeks to release Jesus, but the, the Jewish leaders are intent on getting Jesus executed. And they're sly, they're crafty. Listen to verse 11. The chief priests, they stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead, that is instead of Jesus. They worked to stir up the mob. Their charges in and of themselves weren't substantial enough to bring about the execution of Jesus, and so they exert some pressure. Some pressure that Pilate would have felt as one who wants to maintain this place and position over the Jews as governor. And so the one of responsibility of the governors was to keep peace, to prevent uprisings that might catch the eye of, say, a Caesar. And so he wants to keep peace. And he has real pressure put on him by a crowd that's shouting by these Jews that are calling out for Jesus. But you got to wonder, Barabbas wasn't that great of a guy. He couldn't have had that many friends. Does he really have the support that he needs to be able to get Barabbas free and Jesus to stay there? Jesus, we know, has had his fair share, at least in the past, uh, less than a week ago, a fair share of followers who were crying out to him, Hosanna, and welcoming him into the city as the, as the king. And so will this work? Will they follow the chief priests? Will they follow the council and demand the release for Barabbas and not Jesus? Seems like a pretty big push. But with the formal charge placed on Jesus of blasphemy by all the chief priests and the, the scribes and the elders and the council, all of them have placed upon Jesus the, the formal charge of blasphemy. So that's what the Jews have in front of him. So they have the formal charge of blasphemy. They've probably strategically placed members of the council in different areas of the crowd to make sure they can stir it up from the right corner, to make sure that in unison they can cry out together. And they have in front of them a display that shows them even more. Jesus bound by pilots. And all that was possibly made an easy sell to stir up the crowd to get them to call for Barabbas and not Jesus. And in verse 12, Pilate again says to them, Then what shall I do with you? with the man you call the king of the Jews. And they cried out again, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. The crowd with real pressure, stirring up one another, putting real pressure on Pilate. They want the charge of high treason brought against Jesus so that they can get the punishment that fits that crime that is of execution. And so they call out to crucify him. And in verse 15, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, there's these children books. There's a series of them. I think they're easy readers, so they're, they're quick to pick up and read. It's called Pete the Cat. I don't know if you're familiar with Pete the Cat. There's a Pete the Cat where 
people start telling him what their favorite thing to wear is, and he puts it on. So his mom's like, wear the yellow shirt, it's my favorite. And then his friend's like, wear the red shirt, it's my favorite. And so he just keeps putting on these shirts and different pants, and by the end of it, he looks pretty ridiculous because he keeps listening to what everybody says. And then he also says, and I'm also hot in here. <laughs> and yet that's a picture of what, of what we do when we cave in to the fear of man. I mean, isn't that the picture of Pilate we receive here? Like, he's starting to look ridiculous with how he's gone back and forth. What wrong has he done? He knows there's some innocence here, and yet he puts on another shirt to please the crowd, wishing to satisfy them. He hands Jesus over. He's looking out for somebody. It's himself. He wants to maintain his position. He doesn't like the Jews, and so... He'll try to get back at them in other ways, but for now, he needs to satisfy them, and so he works to satisfy them, because the one he's looking out for the most is himself. And during this trial, he keeps kind of deferring to this riotous crowd, not thinking about justice and what's right and wrong. Now, he's trying to make sure that he's covering his own backside. He even asks them point blank, well, what how wrong has he done? He knows that justice is being perverted, and yet he does nothing about it. And Proverbs chapter 17 says that he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both an abomination to the Lord. It's not just one side or the other. Both of those are an abomination. And the sin compounds for Pilate as he not only condemns him to death, but hands him over to be scourged as was customary before execution. You know the scene. Bind Jesus, tie him to a pole, wouldn't have his clothes on, his back would be uncovered, and they would whip him with whips that had shards of metal or bone on the end. It's a horrific scene that he hands Jesus over to. And what does Jesus do with all of this? The chief priests, the council, the elders, they're all yelling out, crucify him. Pilate is caving in, and what is Jesus doing? Isaiah 53, 7. He's silent. He opens not his mouth. He remains lamb-like before his accusers. And the silent lamb before the shearers is sort of passively showing his perfection in his suffering. Jesus is not receiving a small amount of rejection here. He's not just getting a, a, a bit of unjust treatment. He's not just receiving a, a tiny dose of suffering. It's magnified. Very unjust. Utterly rejected. Immense suffering. And what does he do with it? He drinks it. He takes that cup and he, he drinks it perhaps even encouraged by the picture of Barabbas, the one who's a, a murderer and an insurrectionist being set free as he's the one who's going to face the punishment. Perhaps that encouraged him of the goal that he's after to set those like Barabbas free so that, and he's going to take down the punishment that they deserve. And as he sees that, he gulps down another drink. Peter says this of Jesus' suffering. He says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter says, here's his example that he's placed before you of his suffering, and he calls for those who are going to follow Jesus to follow in his steps of suffering. That is, suffering unjustly. He knows that discipleship is found in following after Jesus, all of his steps, even in unjust suffering. And here's how Jesus suffered. And disciples are called to follow likewise. Jesus sets this perfect example in suffering. And immediately what that perfect example in unjust suffering does is it puts the searchlight into the darkness of our own sinfulness. He faced no small amount of suffering no small amount of rejection, no small amount of injustice, and yet an ounce of suffering produces complaining in me. Just a bit of unjust treatment, and I'm bitter at God. There's some small rejection, and all of a sudden I'm full of self-pity. And you can see in every one of those this thread of pride that thinks that I deserve to be treated as if I'm innocent, as if I deserve God's eternity now. And yet we know from the scripture the reality that pounds our sin-hardened hearts that have pride in them that no one is innocent, not even one. What suffering does so often in our lives is it exposes our sinfulness, easily exposes our sinfulness. Jesus' perfection in his suffering shines the light into our darkness, into our sinful ways. You see, in the midst of Jesus' suffering and in light of Jesus' suffering, all of us to find ourselves in the Isaiah chapter 53. He's suffering silently. We're in that chapter too, although it's not in verse 7, it's in verse 6. You remember what's in verse 6? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every single one of us to our own way. There's where we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 53. Listen to the crowd. They're calling for crucifixion. Pilate is caving. Those are all symptomatic of hearts that have turned to their own way. And so while we have symptoms that might be different, maybe we're not condemning Jesus verbally and calling out for crucifying. We may not be caving to the fear of a crowd at the moment. We all have hearts like that. The disease is the same. We have all turned to our own way. It's the definition of sin. Amen. Jesus is the only one who stands blameless. Amen. And this trial displays that over and over again. Listen to even how he's not objective, but somewhat objective. Pilate says it. He says in verse 5, he's amazed. Why is he amazed? Not just because of silence. Like it, You have all these accusations. You could get out of this. You could defend yourself. And he doesn't. So the wheels start turning. This guy is probably innocent. Look what verses 9 and 10 says. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Because he knows that he should. He wants to put him out in front of them. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Verse 12. Pilate again says to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Because he knows he doesn't deserve what they're calling for. Verse 14. Why? What evil has he done? Pilate tries to find an easy way to release Jesus because he's all about easy ways and making sure he's taken care of. He knows Jesus is innocent. Jesus hasn't been sharp with his replies. He hasn't had a bad attitude. He hasn't even had one slip of, of a tongue. He suffered perfectly. And even Pilate can see some of that. And Jesus' trial and suffering is one of the clearest displays of the innocence of Jesus that we will find. And that Jesus is this innocent sufferer is good news. 
But if he's just an innocent sufferer, we can start to look at Jesus as a victim. It's easy to see how you could read this and see Jesus as a victim. He is bound in front of them. He's treated like a criminal. He's sentenced to death. He's scourged, and then he's delivered over to crucifixion. That sounds like, from start to finish, like a loss. If you want to defeat somebody, there you go. You want to show them as a victim and as a loser, you got it right there. But what on author says this. In both hearings, that is the hearing with the Jews and now hearing with Pilate, however, the prisoner had a role to play. He could have avoided arrest in the first place. He could perhaps chosen to mollify the Sanhedrin. He could have pointed out to Pilate that he posed no threat to public order, which was so clear. He could, in other words, have played all his cards differently and might well have been acquitted or let off with a lighter punishment. His own decisions, in other words, were themselves necessary. So why be delivered over? Why be handed over? One summarizes it well when he says, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. The Father, in perfect, harmonious relationship with Son and Spirit, they have this plan before the creation of the world, before sin. We're going to redeem this. And here's how we're going to redeem it. Here's how we're going to show our great love that we want to overflow into this place. Is we're going to become part of this creation. And we're going to take on what sin deserves in a body. Jesus, the innocent one, is treated and suffers as a criminal because he's being numbered with the transgressors. As Isaiah 53, 12, that's what Jesus is taking on. He himself is being numbered with sinners as a criminal. In other words, Jesus' innocence points to the reality that he is not suffering for his own sin, but for the sin of others. Jesus' innocence might be easy to affirm might be easy even for our lives to assume, but we need to know that Jesus' innocence is absolutely necessary. It's necessary if he's going to accomplish the goal to give his life as a ransom for many. If he's going to be a ransom and make full payment for sinners, he himself is going to have to be innocent. Why? Because God was specific, was he not? He said, here's what kind of Passover lamb you're going to need. Spotless. One without blemish. All the sin sacrifices were all to be of animals without blemish. If Jesus is going to be the Lamb of God, if he's going to fulfill this Passover lamb as he kind of affirmed in the Last Supper with his disciples, if he's going to do that, then he needs to be innocent. He needs to be perfect. He has to be spotless and without blemish. And one theologian says this, that as a sacrifice, he had to be pure, unblemished, a spotless lamb. If he himself had committed sins, he would have had to die for those, for his own sins. But only a sinless life could qualify him to be a sacrifice for others. And so through Jesus' trials, Jesus is displayed before the world as a lamb without blemish. This means that when he sacrifices himself, when he pours out his blood, when his body is broken, he can be a sin bearer. He can have the iniquity of us all laid on him, and he can actually make a sacrifice that's effective for those things. 
Peter, again, helps us out with this concept as he speaks of Jesus and the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. He speaks of that ransom in chapter 1, verse 18. He says that we've been ransomed. How? Verse 19, with the precious blood of Jesus was like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Or in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says that Christ also suffered once for sins. And get these two words here. The righteous... For the unrighteous, the righteous one, Jesus, for, in place of, as a substitute for, the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. Only a righteous sacrifice could bring us to God. Only a spotless lamb could reconcile us to a holy God. And here we have Jesus pouring out his blood, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. He had to be that way because Hebrews chapter 9 tells us in chapter 9 verse 14 said how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify not just external our conscience it works itself down this pure and spotless blood all the way down into our conscience to our hearts every part of us it purifies us from dead works to serve the living God the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do that Only the spotless blood of Jesus could. And so Jesus, in his sacrifice, in his innocence, he provides a place for us before God. He provides a place for the unrighteous, which is everybody, all of us, not even one is righteous. He provides a place for the unrighteous by his blood, by his perfect sacrifice, to be brought to God. And not only is Jesus the the God that we saw in Gethsemane, whose depth of humanity is, is hard to understand, as he grapples with the cup that's in front of him, we see the, the depth of his human nature, how he's like us in every way. But Jesus isn't only the God of Gethsemane who can identify with us in our weakness. He's the righteous one who could make a sacrifice for the unrighteous that we might be brought to God. By his innocence, Jesus gives a place for the unrighteous to repent And to be reconciled. If he's not righteous, we don't have hope in any repentance. But if he's the righteous one, then he can make a sacrifice for us. Then we can repent and turn to him and find reconciliation with God. And so Mark does something really important with this trial. As he places the drama in front of us. It goes back and forth. It's full of ups and downs. Showing the guilt and innocence of different parties, the guilt of those who seek Jesus' destruction, the innocence of Jesus, this perfect lamb. Jesus is innocent, and the drama shows it forth so clearly. And the innocence of Jesus, for those of us here today, should not be assumed, shouldn't be taken for granted. It should be treated as something that is absolutely necessary if we're going to have a place with God. It's innocence that makes a way for sinners. He's identified with us in that he knows the depth of our temptation because he faced the full brunt of temptation and succeeded. And he was still innocent in that now he provides a place for us to be reconciled to God if we would just turn and repent and give our lives to him. The innocence of Jesus. Not something that we should assume something that we should regard as absolutely necessary because in that, all of us, weak, sinful, turned to our own ways, can have a place before God and be reconciled to him. Let's stop and thank Jesus 
for that sacrifice. Would you pray with me? God, I'm afraid I've misplaced myself in this story, and I think it's very clear from this text and, and the things that our pastor has said today that we are not Pilate, even though we're always fighting, uh, doing foolish things to please sinful mankind and I think it's also true that we are not the crowd. I don't think anyone who hates you, Jesus, would come into this place today to hear people sing about how awesome you are and to hear people cry out to you in prayer for help and to hear your word proclaimed and your acts declared to be the most glorious things that have ever happened. Uh, I find myself to be Barabbas. And we all are that. All of the saints who have gathered here to worship you today, we are not without spot or blemish. And we have been turned loose and set free in, in a way that would be totally unfair and unjust, Jesus, if you had not stepped in the way and taken our place. So I just want to spend a little bit of time today as a body and, and let us confess our own sins to you, Jesus. Show us, Holy Spirit, uh, the sin in our hearts that is so bad that this has to happen to you, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for obeying your Father. I don't think of that very often. Your innocence, not just in this difficult trial, but throughout all of your life, you did what your Father has commanded all of us to do and how he's demanded that all of us live. You actually did it, and you have experienced every temptation that we have, and yet you were not a failure like us. You were a magnificent success. And we are so thankful that you lived a holy life, that you resisted the devil, and that you overcame everything, sin, temptation. You overcame death. 
and we rejoice in that, and we want to thank you for loving, filthy sinners who deserve to be terminated. You didn't defend yourself, but you let us go free, and we are so thankful for that, Jesus. And we pray that you would help us suffer as you did. I'm with Pastor Dylan. I'm ashamed at what low-level trials it takes to make me squeal and cry out and demand justice when justice from you, God, is the very last thing that we want in our own lives. And we're so glad that you give us grace instead. But will you give us strength? Will you help us to trust you? Jesus, you entrusted yourself to the Father and you endured this brutality because you knew what was on the other side. And we know what's in the future for us too. We know how our story ends. We know that we will endure to the end. We know that we will be resurrected on that day and that we will be with you forever. And right now you have things for us to do and it's going to cause us to get beat up. So I pray that we would be courageous and brave and not ashamed of the gospel, but Jesus, that we would look at you being whipped and beaten and mocked and that we would take strength from that and that we would be like your apostles and just delight when we get knocked around because we belong to you. Help us in our suffering to be strong and to trust you and obey and live the way that you've called us to so that we look different, God. Everyone can whine when things are hard. We want to be people who praise you when things are difficult, like your scriptures command. And it's possible. You don't command us to do anything that you will not equip us to do through the power of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we love you, and we want to sing to you. We are so thankful to deserve hell and death and instead receive you and know you and know your love and have our guilt and our shame taken away and to have an unspeakable and unbelievable hope for the future. Everything that we have is because of you, Jesus, and we adore you today. Thank you for loving us and setting us free. In your name I pray. Amen.